Welcome to Tremophonic Audio Horror Stories. You're listening to the season finale for series one of Tremophonic The Sounds of Fear. Today's story, Scratch, was actually the first audio story I wrote and was the reason for releasing my stories as podcasts. Please follow my Tremophonic social media and podcast accounts and share my posts and stories to a wider audience. Thank you for supporting Tremophonic through series one and I hope to see you again for series two. Now is time to sit back and listen to Scratch. Hello everyone and welcome to Documented Lives, your weekly adventure into the extraordinary stories of ordinary people. I'm your host Emma and join me as we talk about the folks that you won't find mentioned in the history books. I've got a really unique story for you today and it's a privilege to bring you something so rare. It's a media format that we've never aired before, and it's quite mysterious really. So last week we received a package at our London offices containing just a single vinyl record. There was nothing on it, no label, no documentation. It was just a plain white paper sleeve. And on the front it said, Harold Holborn reads the memoirs of Reginald Holborn, 15 June 1967. So quite a curious one. So it's fair to say this piqued the interest of the producer and myself when we started doing a little bit of investigating into these names to see what we could find out. Now, other than birth and marriage records, often there isn't a lot that we can find, but we did find some mentions of them in old newspaper articles, and there's some very interesting stories about Reginald's lucky escapes at the end of the 19th century. Here's what we've managed to piece together so far. Harold appears to be Reginald's grandson, There's also mention of Archie, and I think Archie is Harold's dad and therefore Reginald's son. Are you following? Good. So it seems that Reginald had been travelling across Europe, but for some reason, many details of his journey are just unknown. Harold, however, decided to publish an audio account of his grandfather's story in 1967, and we're lucky enough to be able to share that with you today. Harold recorded the memoirs in Oxford, but newspapers reported that the day after there was an unexplained fire, and this was thought to have destroyed the recording along with all of Reginald's handwritten documents. Even weirder, Harold just kind of disappeared immediately afterwards. There's some police records that state actually that he was the prime suspect in starting the fire. The only record I can find about him after the fire seems to suggest that maybe he moved to a remote Scottish island, but there's nothing official, there's just hearsay from local papers in 1968. So ladies and gents, what we have for you today is apparently that vinyl record that was supposed to have been destroyed. As far as we know, this is the only copy that exists. It's a little warped, probably some fire damage, but we've test played a few minutes just to make sure it sounds okay. There might be a few kind of skips or distortions, but overall we think it's going to be okay and we want to experience this together. This is a documented lives first. We're going to play for you the vinyl record in full. We can only apologise for any interference with the sound, but we think it's worth it. So let's get to it. Here is the only known recording of the memoirs of Reginald Holborn, presented by and with a foreword from his grandson Harold.
Hello, and thank you for this opportunity to create this audio recording. I've had my grandfather's letters and journals for a number of years since I inherited them from my father. My father Archibald told me that he'd never read them as he wanted to remember his father the way that he had last seen him, a happy-go-lucky optimist who was always filled with enthusiasm for adventure. My father told me stories of Reginald, his incredible expeditions to the Amazon and Middle Americas. My grandfather fancied himself an archaeologist and scientific researcher, always on the search for an original find. He had attended Oxford University and stayed in close contact with his professor there, who provided him with funding for his investigations, enabling him to pursue his passion. My father Archibald, known to the family as Archie, was twelve when his father died, and he grew up in Oxfordshire with my grandmother and her sister, who moved in with them shortly after the funeral. My father married my mother, Glenda, in 1911, and I was born a year later. I knew nothing of my grandfather until my father returned from the war and felt that it was time I understood more about our family history. However, he made me promise never to read these documents within his lifetime, in case I felt the need to tell my father about the content. I kept that promise. And for that reason, I first read these reports two years ago, and soon felt the need to contact yourselves, sorry, the recording company here, so that I could create a longer-lasting version than the delicate paper they were written on. I must emphasise that I do not read these letters with pride for the man my grandfather was, more out of duty, to honour the memories of those caught up in and affected by the events that surrounded my grandfather's journey. Until now, no living person has heard the reports I will recount here today, so please, listen well. The first letter was the only one addressed to my grandmother, and helps us to understand where he was at the time of these events, both geographically and mentally. <clears throat> 28th of January, 1897. My dearest Martha, we arrived at our lodgings above the coach house today, just before sundown. I'm not certain what the nearest town is called, but it should be on the postmark when you receive this. We've not seen a large settlement for a couple of days, but we are carrying enough supplies to last us. The mountains here are a sight to behold. A lot like that painting that used to hang above your parents' mantle. The silent nature of the roads we're travelling can be eerie at times, with only the sounds of nature, wind, and the trundling axle of the cartwheels. The sight of the surrounding snow-covered peaks, clear-cut against a crystal sky, stretching endlessly on and on, is something a person can hardly tire of. The winter weather adds to the natural beauty, and a cold, crisp air keeps us alert. The sun is settling later here than back in England, allowing for perhaps an extra hour of journey during daylight. The roads are unsteady at the best of times. It's not worth traversing these mountains in the dark. The risk of coming off the road is too high. But do not worry for me, my love. Our young coachman, Alistair, an English adventure seeker and mountaineer, has taken this route many times before, and knows the safest routes 
and resting places between here and our destination in Milan. The mountains here in Switzerland are breathtaking. I wish you could have shared this expedition with me, but uh, alas, I know these long journeys no longer agree with you like they used to. Walter, though, is good company. He may only be young, but he provides very intelligent conversation. His unique insights into my own research are why I hired him as an assistant, after all. I hope you and our little Archie are coping well with the continuing cold weather. I hope it's not as bad as it was at Christmas. I don't think I'll ever see that much snow again, even here in the foothills of the mountains. Alistair is quite the character. So enthusiastic about this area, he truly loves the mountains. He's a keen traveller himself. He's told me about his planned adventures in Mexico and India. And tomorrow, we travel to a set of Roman ruins that Alistair insists we must see while we travel through this way. I will send you another letter when we reach Milan next week. Take care, my angel. Reggie. Hmm. <clears throat> the next letter was not dated, but I deduce from the context that it was written the next day. More like a report on the events than a letter. He addressed it to his colleague and mentor back at University of Oxford. Dear Professor Gardner, You won't believe it. Our guide, Alistair, was such a great addition to our team. The Roman ruins he showed us were worth every second of the detour. I've never seen a sight quite like it. We parked the coach and horses a short walk away, near the road, and had to descend the mountainside by foot. I took my satchel, almost dropping it over the side at one point, but thankfully I held my footing and gripped it tight. I would have been devastated to lose the excavation kit you loaned me. Never mind my notebooks. I don't leave anywhere that I am not. When we reached the base of the valley, the site we were looking for still wasn't clear. But a short stroll through a carved-out chasm led to the most incredible sight. It was simply a doorway in the side of the rock, but at the same time so much more than just an entranceway. The ancient timber doors would have stood twelve feet high, and what remained had rotten back to just leave the elaborate iron hinges protruding from the surround. And what a frame it was. The intricately carved detail of the stone had, of course, weathered back to leave smoother features than one would have decorated this arch with, but you could still make out the twisting patterns of snakes and swords, knitting nature and metal like bramble and barbed wire, a deadly combination that no man should dare to cross. Any inscription that may have once existed on the plaque above the keystone could no longer be seen, but the grandeur of the empty, flat-faced façade implied that an important message had once been present there. Peering through the doorway, we could see into what appeared to be laid out like a small chapel or temple, but empty of any typical furnishings. The interior walls were wet with runoff from the mountainside. This temple appeared to be carved from the stone of the cliff, 
no need for any supporting columns like I would have expected from Roman architecture. In fact, nothing here seemed Roman, like Alistair had suggested, but for all my academic studies, I couldn't place another architectural style that would have described it. It was clearly an ancient place, but with the intricacy of carving designs, I would have expected from only the last few hundred years. Rockfall filled one side of the temple, so due to the clearly unsafe nature of the structure, we did not step far through the doorway. Just inside the left of the entrance, Alistair showed us to a smaller and more solidly preserved side room instead, which again presented more interwoven swords and snakes across the walls, but this time they appeared to be carved into a harder, more permanent material, marble perhaps. It was hard to make out, with only a lantern to illuminate it, but it was clearly cold and smooth to the touch. It was like every noise we made echoed in such a way that vibrations flowed through the stone. The end of the room presented us with a simple font, overflowing with water that had dripped down stalactites from the ceiling. Walter was clearly thrilled to be investigating such a hidden gem. He ran on ahead with an excited energy, beckoning us onward into the darkness. Alistair didn't seem remotely worried about our distance from the exit of this room and the depth we were travelling into the cavern. He'd clearly been inside these ruins before. Perhaps he'd brought other travellers this way through the mountains. How else would he have known about this place after all? At that realisation... I felt a little disappointed that this wasn't the unique exploratory experience I've been hunting for for so many years. One day, I know I will be the first to uncover a site and its secrets, but today I did get a little bit closer. Walter's enthusiasm caused him to knock into the marble font with his knee, so we, of course, checked that he was not injured as he sat clutching his leg, but while I kneeled, I noticed slots engraved into the floor on all four sides of the font. With my fingertips, I removed a little dirt from one of the slots and found it was surprisingly loose, with a different type of stone underneath. I took out my excavation kit and carefully lifted the loose stones and grit until it was clear that there was a stone tablet housed in this trench. I checked all sides of the font and found it was the same for each of the cavities. Each contained a tablet. There was so little light emitting from the lantern I could not discern the details on the tablet surfaces, so I removed each one of the four tablets from their cavities, each about the size of a diary or ledger, and carried them in my satchel. At that juncture, with Walter now moving slower, and myself laden with extra weight, we returned along the path we'd trodden, back to the carriage in order to reach tonight's accommodation by nightfall. To say I'm delighted with today's discovery is an understatement. These tablets are remarkable. I'll take some time along our journey to study them. These could make an impressive addition to the university's collection. Now that we have the tablets set out in front of us, it's hard to tell if there's an order to the four tablets. Each one is inscribed with writing from top to bottom, but it's not all clear lettering. There are sections that are definitely Latin, but it's intermittent with other writing and runes from 
an alphabet, perhaps more than one, that I don't even recognise. Some of the lettering is so thoroughly scratched that I couldn't say what language is underneath. The best I can judge is that one of the tablets may be the first, as, unlike the others, it starts with Lectori Salutem, which approximates to Greetings to the Reader. I'll write to you again tomorrow, once I have deciphered more of the confusing style of writing that has been adopted here. I'm euphoric. I won't sleep tonight. I'll be up for hours working on this with Walter. I will report more tomorrow. Reggie. Again, my grandfather neglects to date his next letter to the professor, but it logically follows from the previous message. <clears throat> Dear Professor Gardner, Walter and I made progress last night, but the tablets are curious. It's as if the writer was a prisoner somewhere, and carved these tablets as a memoir. He speaks of mar male captus benedetentus, or being wrongly captured, but well or properly detained. But what is especially strange is that it's never in full sentences, just phrases, enough to get a gist, but not to fully understand. If I could decipher the other languages used, I might be able to get further, but it's challenging to even read the Latin inscription. It's as if someone, at some stage, has purposely tried to scratch the, scratch the tablet in such a way that the text is legible. We've properly cleaned the stones so that they're as clear as we can make them, but often we're missing vital parts of sentences. However, the final two lines of this tablet are plain to see. Faciam quod libet quod necesse est est. Or, I'll do whatever it takes. The writer's intent was to break free of his wrongful imprisonment. Perhaps that was the purpose of the temple, though it was a strangely religious-looking place in which to hold someone captive. But it would explain why he left the tablets buried, out of sight of his captors. The final line seemed oddly compelling. Faciam ut me memimemineris. Or, I'll make you remember me almost like a threat. It seemed a peculiar way to sign off a message. While Walter and I try to work out the other languages on the tablet, we can move on to look at the Latin passages on the others. I'll report on the next tablet when we have some time at this evening's lodgings. Reggie. So we'll just take a short pause while we turn over to side B. I don't know if you guys could hear it, but we could hear background noises from the recording studio. We were thinking that for whatever reason there were no retakes or editing when Harold was recording. Interesting. Some of the glitches we can hear, we can't tell if it's analogue errors on the vinyl or if it's a digital error with our recording. Vinyl sometimes skips if it's damaged, doesn't it? But it doesn't sound quite like that. It's odd. We're hoping it's just a fault with our equipment, but... Nevertheless, we can still hear it and we can't wait to hear more. Once again, this is a Documented Lives first and we join you, our listeners, in being the first people to hear the content of Side B. Are we recording? <clears throat> the next letter 
at first I was surprised, was not addressed to my grandmother. But then I realised that my grandfather would have been trying to protect her from information that she didn't need to know, that would unnecessarily worry her when there was nothing he or she could do about it. Dear Professor Gardner, Tonight I am alone. I must recant the details about tonight's event, and I must ask that you contact those who should be informed. I would perform this duty myself if I could be there sooner. We had made good progress today through the mountain pass. Daylight was bright, the air was crisp, and the horses plodded on happily. That was until we turned onto a shadowed mountainside path, shadowed by the mountain itself. Our eyes took time to adjust. Walter lit a lantern to see the inside of the carriage more clearly, but stranger still, it continued to get darker outside, rapidly. Sunset was not due for at least another hour, so in the impenetrable darkness we found a spot to pull to the side of the path. It was so dark, we could barely make out the cliff edge outside the window. Alistair stepped down from the box atop the cabin. I heard an almighty thud outside the door of the carriage, so I climbed out onto the roadside to investigate the noise. Alistair was peering into the dense darkness ahead along the path, as if he knew the path was supposed to be there, but couldn't make it out. I lost focus on the noise that had drawn me outside, and instead walked past the horses to catch him up. He turned to look at me. As he turned, his face was dimly lit by the lantern light behind me, the left side of his face shadowed by my presence. But as I looked at him, his eyes widened, looking behind me. The lantern light suddenly flashed onto the right-hand side of his face. My shadow darted sideways as his mouth opened and his head turned. I thought for a moment that the horses were playing up and starting off without us on board, but alas, that would have been good news. I turned to look. The wheel of the carriage had dropped over the cliff edge. The lantern had fallen to the side of the vehicle, and I heard Walter, still having difficulties with his leg, shouting at first, but turning panicked as he tried to open the roadside door of the carriage to no avail. The coach slipped further. Walter's shouts turned to screams as the carriage flipped to its side and dragged down the cliffside. The horses straightened their legs and dug in their hooves in desperately trying to stop themselves from being dragged backwards. But the weight of the vehicle was too much for them to counter. We could only watch in horror as the horses slipped and skidded to the edge of the ravine, their eyes widening and faintly glinting back at us through the deepening darkness. The sounds of snapping wood, Walter's screams, and the horses' frantic cries created a cacophony of harrowing noise in the otherwise silent darkness. The horses slipped back as their harness twisted and raised them off their feet, pulling them over the edge in emphatic fashion. The carriage dropped. The sounds grew fainter, the lantern light grew smaller, until a distant and echoing thud 
burst a thousand splintered crackles around the valley. And then there was silence. I had fallen to my knees in horror at the events I was struggling to comprehend. We were helpless to prevent it. Had Alistair stopped the cart too close to the edge? It was impossible to tell in the darkness. The darkness that had enveloped the whole road. The darkness that now appeared to be lifting. The way was still shadowed, but the road was clear to see. The scuffs and dragged dirt were lit by daylight. There, on the edge where the carriage had fallen, was my satchel. My satchel containing the tablets. Had Walter thrown this out the window before falling to his end? It seemed such an unlikely thought to have gone through his head at the time. Perhaps the thud that had caused me to leave the carriage was the satchel and tablets hitting the ground. One tablet was visible, having fallen half out of the satchel. Even in the shadowed light, I could make out a clear phrase. In, absent in absentum lucus tenebrae vincunt. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. The chance that this was the one phrase clearly presented to me felt strangely ominous. Did this refer to the darkness of the temple in which he was imprisoned? Or had it somehow foretold the sudden darkness we experience today? I will have to postpone my translations for tonight. But I thought it only appropriate to relay my memory of today's events to you in writing while the memory is fresh. I am unsure about the onward trajectory of my journey now. We must, of course, assist law enforcement in their investigations. However, we cannot stay here for long, as the winter weather worsens. The post may not be as frequent as usual when the snow settles, so I will continue my translations in my journal after we have rested. Reginald. This was the last letter my grandfather sent. When I read this the first time, it didn't feel like my grandfather truly felt the loss of his friend and assistant. But grief affects us all in different ways, and I believe writing these accounts were his way of internally processing his experience. Reginald did continue to write in his journal, as promised, and I will continue to present this history with the passages that followed from this point in time. I should note that this carriage incident was reported in the newspapers, indeed, even in the British papers, so my grandmother was not as blissfully ignorant as my grandfather might have hoped. From this point on, I will try to avoid interrupting my grandfather's account so that you can hear the events the way my grandfather presented them in his journal. Fortunately, he did date his journal entries, so we start from the next entry after the accident. Let me find the right page. The pages are quite delicate. Journal entry, 4th of February, 1897. It has been a few days since my last entry. Alistair has barely spoken to me since the incident. But I don't believe it's simply because he's upset. He seems very focused on something. 
We've stayed put in the accommodation here while we deal with the police investigation into the accident. The innkeeper is generous and, hearing of our plight, offered us two of his best rooms. The bedroom is large enough to house a small table and chair where I'm able to sit and write this account. With a large picture window looking down the valley, in the day the village buildings stretch out below, and at night the moonlight glistens off a small lake in the distance. Staying in one place has given me some time to look over the tablets in more detail and translate a few more extracts. Walter's absence has been trying. Whenever I want to turn to him for an opinion, his screams echo in my ears. Without him, I am both lost in my mind and in my work. The language of the tablets continues to puzzle me, and the Latinic extracts continue to show strange scratching marks across the letters. I have worked out what I can decipher from the second tablet. In girum imus et consumimo sumimo igni. Translating roughly as, We go in circles and are consumed by fire. This passage is closely followed by Igni natura renovator integra, or through fire, nature is reborn whole. I have to assume this referred to a fire that the writer survived. I don't know where the circles are, but there's definitely a defiant, survivalist tone to the language. Like the circles are essential for survival but I didn't notice any circles where we found the tablets. Smoke and fire damage in the temple would have made it difficult to detect anything so many centuries after the prisoner was left there. The next bit keeps nagging at me. Nil nil igitur mutur mors est ad nus. Death, therefore, is nothing to us. It's clear the writer is unafraid of death after the ordeal he's been through, this is the first instance we've seen a use of the first-person plural. Who is the writer referring to as us? Was there another person imprisoned with him? The last sentence in this tablet is strangely foreboding. Fui quod est, eris quod 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 sum. I was once what you are, you will be what I am. Is he telling the reader that as once they were free, the reader would become a prisoner? Is this version of you even addressing the reader? I will need to reflect on this one further, I feel. Tonight, I will talk to Alistair about the next leg of the journey, whether he thinks we'll be able to procure new transportation, and hopefully we'll finally have a chance to talk about what happened the other night. I will translate the third tablet tomorrow. Fifth of February, eighteen ninety-seven. I think I'm being manipulated, and the cost is unforgivable. I saw his body, engulfed and unable to leave. Tonight, the inn burned, and monumentally violently. Alistair and I met in the lounge for a drink before we retired for the night. He told me of his contact that would send a carriage in the morning, a one-horse carriage this time, but a means of transportation nonetheless. The lounge was a cosy room, 
Rich ruby curtains covered the large sash windows, and the mottled carpet almost caressed your feet. The walls were faded and patchy. The pattern the wallpaper had once displayed was now a distant memory. The fireplace crackled away beside us, the charred remains of a log smouldering like it had been burning for about an hour already. I accidentally pushed my satchel across the table, across the table, emptying our half-full glasses onto the tabletop and rug below. So I offered to buy us both one last nightcap. I stood up and left the lounge, approaching the innkeeper at his desk in the hallway. I was out of the lounge for about a minute, and that's when I heard the screams. Innumerable cries of anguish so sudden in their piercing volume and pitch. I turned to the doorway and was blinded by the brightness of flames. The flickering ferocity of the blaze filled the room with no space for any person within to remain unscathed. It took until that moment for me to realise I was looking back at the lounge I had just left. Alistair was inside. The deafening screams, the howls of agony emanating from the faceless frenzy of fire, suddenly fell to silence, just as rapidly as they had started. The flames rapidly dimmed to reveal the devastation behind. The room was black. No surface had been left untouched by the furnace of heat, and alas, no person could possibly have been left unscathed. As I squinted through the brightness of the fire, I could make out the blackened figure of a body where Alistair had sat on the far side of the room. I was still and silent, petrified by the shock, staring through the unimaginable and unfathomably instant destruction. On the charcoal remains of the table alongside the body was my satchel. The leather bag with a metal clasp, an item that fire could destroy without hesitance. But it was intact, untouched. No sign of melted metal, no singe of animal hide. And that's when it became apparent to me. Some destructive and evil force is trying to prevent me from reading these tablets. No person could have lit that fire so effectively, just like no person could have blocked out the sun resulting in the carriage falling over that cliff. And both times, I escaped the tragedy by seconds. These incidents were designed to stop me. To stop me from translating? The satchel containing the tablets had been the reason for me to exit the carriage, and the reason we needed new drinks. Reflecting on the translations from last night, I wonder if the tablets were sending a warning. The tablets were, indeed, consumed by fire, but emerged whole and intact. But the circles? What circles are related to the fire? What circles did the tablets enter? I am forced to question the providence of the tablets. It's as if someone planted them there, specifically for me to find. Are any of these writings even true? I must finish what I've started and complete the translation, find out the truth, before this entity can try to stop me again. The third tablet, I fear, is making this truth apparent. The writer reports, 
E erexit monuxit monumentum aere perennius. Or, I raised a monument more enduring than bronze. At first I was unsure what monument he referred to, but the next passage made it clearer. Litera scripta manet. The written word endures. Hop in, in, in enum corpus meum. For this is my body. The writer believed he was achieving immortality through the written word, as if the stone tablets held his soul. Whether I believe that an entity lives in these tablets, I cannot say. All empirical logic makes me think it preposterous nonsense. But the events of the last few days are making me wary. I believe in coincidence, but these events make me question what I thought I knew. Is some demonic force trying to prevent me from completing the translation? Am I perhaps condemning an evil spirit through my translation? A power that is trying to stop me? I will remain in the town here while the authorities establish what is to be done. But without Alistair, I am again truly lost. He was a good man, a knowledgeable man. In lieu of Walter, he might have helped make more sense of these writings. But I will continue, truly alone. Sixth of February, eighteen ninety-seven. I am locked in my chamber tonight. The curtains are closed, and I am reluctant to light more than one lantern to see by. I fear I should not have been translating these tablets at all. The least I can do is finish writing what I have discovered as a warning to anyone who tries to investigate the stones further. I was wrong, so very wrong. If any power was preventing me from finishing my translation, it was some omnipotent force of good. It knew what I was doing, decoding, and it was taking all measures it could to stop me. The distortion of the text makes sense now. It's like the entity was trying to make it illegible, scratching words away, scratching words, trying to prevent it from being read. I will relay my already completed translation from the legible engravings on Tablet 3. I hope it will make clear why I must not translate the fourth. I missed a message hidden in the previous passage. There was an unusual spacing of letters, which I didn't know what to make of at the time. The tablet started with E erexit monum entum. Which can also translate as I raised smiling demons. The imprisonment starts to make sense. This writer had practiced dark magics to bring evil entities into this world. Tablet talks directly about the act of translation, which appears oddly personal and targeted. Omnisus traductor traditor traditor. Every translator is a traitor. I can't take this personally, of course. This was written hundreds of years ago, and likely refers to the passages that I can't translate. Non in legendo sed in intelligendo legendes constitut. 
the laws depend not on being read, but being understood. This part made me worry about what laws are being referred to, but it suggests the simple act of reading the text will not have the desired effect. It relies on the reader understanding what they are reading. Perhaps these tablets aren't the original text. What if the tablets themselves are just a translation of something that predates them? The Latin in the inscription is like the Latin in my writings, mixed with another language. A message passed from iteration to iteration, from retelling to retelling, round and round, like it's circular. Each telling also seems to suffer an affliction. The scratches on the tablet, the accidents surrounding my translation. So, the circles, are they objects or are they patterns? Is the story going in circles, retelling through the tablets, retelling through my writing, retelling across history, passing from generation to generation? Am I a part of this? The last passage I translated explains why, even as an agnostic, non-superstitious scientist and researcher, I could not tempt fate further. Invictus maneo luctor et emergo ex relatio. I remain unvanquished. I struggle and emerge, arising out of the narration. My narration. My relaying of this to you in my journal. The entity that claims to be imprisoned within these stones, unafraid of death, with a desire to be reborn, will be revived through my work and translation. So I must end my account here. The last tablet must remain unseen, and I must try to destroy it. From the desk of the Polizia Cantonale, Swiss Confederation, 8th of February, 1897. Dear Martha Holborn, I regret to inform you. 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 Thank you for listening to Scratch, presented by Tremophonic. Scratch was written, performed, recorded, and edited by Richard Wilson, guest starring the voice of Emma Brooks, with music and sound effects from Feslian Studios. All my stories are copyright protected, and any reuse or adaptation requires express written consent. Don't forget to follow Tremophonic on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and tremophonic.com and keep an eye on podcast channels for my upcoming stories. If you would like to enable me to record and publish more of my stories and also create a vinyl pressing of Scratch so that it can be heard as it was originally intended, your support would be much appreciated in whatever amount you're able to offer. You can find me on buymeacoffee.com or head over to tremophonic.com to find out more about me and my horror projects. 
I look forward to seeing you again for Series 2 of Tremophonic Audio Horror Stories later in 2022. Thank you for listening.